morning. My name is Drew Henderson. Um, glad to have the opportunity to get to share with you this morning in place of the team, in place of Jim and many others that are actually in Israel as we speak. So if they're not there, they are on their way. But uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12 verses 1 to 21. If you'd like to take your Bibles and open there, we'll be getting there in just a minute. But before we actually read through that and what what that means, we've got to go back and understand what's been going on up to this point. In Matthew chapter 11, there has been a long line of misunderstanding as to who Jesus was and his identity and the purpose of his ministry, if not outright rejection to him. And then skipping over chapter 12, which we'll be looking at today and then next Sunday into chapter 13, Jesus will be giving this long line of teachings, this long line of parables, describing the response of people to the kingdom of God. Yet it's right here in chapter 12 where Jesus begins to have this confrontation with this group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees on the hypocrisy that existed not only in their own lives but in their leadership as they led the people of Israel in interpreting the law and in their worship. Now in general, I I think it would be true to say that we don't enjoy hypocrites. We don't enjoy people that say one thing and then they live a different way. We want people to live open, truthful lives. We don't enjoy it when people ask us to do things that they themselves are not willing to to, to do. Not something that we like as a culture and a people would be hypocrites. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to read through a book, and the book was on finances and God's view toward finances and how we need to use our finances in a way that's honoring to God. And I was making my way through this book, really understanding what the author was saying, and then I came to this point that I thought, man, I'm not so sure about this. And one of the points that the author was trying to make was one of the, one of the easiest way you can waste your money is if you buy soft drinks at a restaurant when you go out to when you go out to eat, right? And it used to not be a big deal, 97 cents. Jeff White remembers the day when it was 97 cents to buy a soft drink, and then it was $1.50, then $1.99, and now it's like $3 to get a soft drink. And uh, the author was saying, look, you just need to watch that, and I'm going to have to admit to you, I sort of took offense to that. Love a good soft drink. There is nothing that I like more than going to Qdoba and going to that big wall of joy, right? That two Coke machines, 400 flavors. My, my formula is just get whatever and put lime in it. I love that. Just add lime. That's what I'm all about. But made my way through this book. And then I was at a gathering of leaders and some pastors and happened to be in the situation where the author of the book was there. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do. Because my motives aren't always pure. I'm going to watch. I'm going to see what they get. I want to see, is it going to be water with lemon? Or is it going to be a soft drink? And so the order is made. The waiter brings out a soft drink. And so even hypocrisy in its simplest form, silly stories like this, there is something about it that just bothers us. It just grates against us. And then we go to things like religious hypocrisy. Oh boy, right? You know those Christians, they say one thing and they live a completely different way. I would be a follower of Jesus Christ. It, I, I would do that. that. That's what I would be all about. But those people that go to church, they're just... They're hypocrites, and I don't want to associate myself with them. And 
I do think that there is always this truth that as the church, we need to accept whatever responsibility that we have for having hypocrisy in the church, and we need to call it as such, and we need to say that that is not okay. Yet, I also want to look around at the rest of the world. I want to look at all of those people who are accusing the church of this and say, now you're the ones that think that you have all of this hypocrisy. You think you're not a hypocrite, right? So hypocrisy, specifically religious hypocrisy, whenever we think about this, when we deal with this, this is something that we really want God to deal with. And this is what we see this morning in Matthew chapter 12. And the main idea, the main thought that we're going to be going after, we'll read through it here together. It's up on the screen here. It's in Jesus we have one who, because of his authority as God, that's key, his authority as God, he sets the rules and he denounces hypocritical religion, which might even include yours or mine for that matter. And we're going to see here in these two short narratives, these two sections of Scripture, where Jesus is specifically having this conflict. He's addressing the Pharisees and how they are dealing with the Sabbath and what they are accusing Jesus of doing on the Sabbath and how this was going to be wrong. This idea that God gave his people back in the Old Testament as he created this covenant with his own set-apart and different people. You see this in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, that they need to honor, they need to obey the Sabbath, that you need to take one day and rest, and not just for rest's sake, but you need to take this day, you need to honor me, you need to not trust your own work, you need to trust that I will provide for you. And as they saw this, and as they saw God's provision, they would turn and then worship God and thank God, give him all of the glory for what God has provided for them. And so was it going to be, was it going to be the oral tradition? Was it going to be all of the different rules, all of the different laws that the Pharisees had come up with to protect the Sabbath? Was it going to be that or was it going to be Jesus and his kingdom? So as we move into this and as we seek to understand this whole debate of what's going on here with the Sabbath, we have to understand about some things about the law in general of which the Sabbath specifically is a part. Okay, so we know the law mainly, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments. But if you look more than that, you see that there are actually 613 different commands that God calls his people to follow. This was given is a very, very good thing. It was to show the people of God how they might stay in relationship with them, how, how they might have a relationship with God and how this was all going to be and how all of this was going to interact. And so it was actually about relationship, but more than relationship, it was so that God would create for himself as the people followed God's law, as they were a part of this covenant, that they would become a different people, a distinct people, that they would be totally different than all of those nations surrounding them. And part of this was something that was relatively simple, like the Sabbath. So I've got in my hand a small green Lego. A picture of it's going to be on the screen. And uh, I know some of you might be thinking, is, what he, is, is he trying to make a comparison between the way that the Pharisees viewed the law and how they viewed specifically the Sabbath and how all this interacted in Second Temple Judaism? Is he trying to make a comparison between that and a small green Lego? And the answer is yes, we're going to try, okay? So something that was relatively simple. I'm going to give this to my people. I want my people to obey this law. This is going to be a good thing for them. They're going to learn to trust me. 
And the Pharisees, because of their righteousness, because they wanted to adhere to this law, because they saw in the past what happened when they disobeyed it, which it was not a good thing, as God judged them, because they wanted to hold this high, because they wanted to value the Sabbath and the law in general. What they started to do was, is they started to build up this protection around the law. So what do you do when you want to hold something high, when you want to value something, when you want to make sure that people do this? Well, you protect it. And that's exactly what they did. They continued to build more and more laws, more and more oral tradition around specifically the Sabbath so that the people would, would obey it. And in the end, they ended up with this. Oral tradition, law, something that actually if you, if you look and you look in their, what's known as the Mishnah, you see that there are 39 different laws, 39 different traditions surrounding the Sabbath that the Pharisees had called the people to follow. Now, that sounds like a good idea. If something's really good, then what we need to do is we need to create rules around it. We need to protect the law. This is, this is in the end, this is what it's all about. Now, up on the screen, there's going to be a name of a man named Jehoiakim Jeremiah. Real smart guy, wrote a book called uh, Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus. And this is what he says. At this time, when Jesus is debating the Pharisees, the oral tradition of the Pharisees was elevated, okay, up to this level, was elevated to the level above God's original intention for the law that he gave his people in the Torah. Now, Jesus is on the scene, and he begins to take all of their oral tradition, all of their law, everything, and he begins to peel it back, layer after layer after layer, law after law after law, law 39, 38, 37, 36, 35, and in so doing, revealing the very heart of the Pharisees, revealing their intentions, revealing their motives, revealing their own hypocrisy. So that, with that in mind, let's look at Matthew 12. We're going to start off in verse 1. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so what you have here is Jesus and the disciples, they're out doing ministry. They're walking through this field. All of a sudden, the disciples are hungry. Hmm, so what do we do? Well, we need to pluck heads of grain here. That sounds great, right? Pharisees catch wind of this. Hang on just a second. Remember in our, our laws here, one of the 39, you can't reap crops on the Sabbath, this would be against our own tradition, against our own law. Seriously? I mean, they're just hungry. They, they just need food. This is Jesus' response. He uses this phrase over and over again in verse 3. He says, have you not read? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for any of those who were with him, but only for the priests. Have you not read that? Verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, 
and are guiltless. So what Jesus does here is he goes back into their history and says, look, remember this, it was the spirit of the law that's at stake here. It's not your oral tradition, it's not your 39 laws, it's the spirit of the law that is important. And so he goes back to David and he says, look, in David's case, situation much the same as Jesus and the disciples. David's men are fleeing Saul. You can go back and you can read this whole story and how it developed in 1 Samuel 21, but as David is fleeing Saul, they become hungry. And in this situation, Jesus affirms it it was okay for them to go into the tabernacle to eat the bread of the presence. That was originally only supposed to be for the priests, but in this situation, it was okay. So look at the case of David, or also Look at the case of the priests. I mean, the priests were the ones, they, they were the ones that provided for the worship of the people. Was it okay that they worked on the Sabbath? Of course, someone had to provide for this. So in the case of David and in the case of the priests, this was okay. It's the spirit of the law. And if that was then, if that was then, and this is now, Verse 6, I don't know if Jesus pointed at himself when he said this. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something much greater. That would be him. And so the point is, is that Jesus' authority is much greater than David. He would be the fulfillment of David. He was indeed the Davidic Messiah. That is Jesus, much greater than David. Matter of fact, his authority is much greater than much greater than the temple, much greater than the priests. In verse 7, and if you would have known, he says that again, if you would have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, quoting their own scriptures, Hosea 6.6, 6, you would not have condemned the guiltless, speaking of his own men. If you would have understood that, If you would have read this, if you would have read this, if you would have known, if you would have understood that, you wouldn't be worrying about my disciples and if they were eating, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man, Jesus' title that he gave himself. I don't know about you, but whenever people give themselves their own nickname, kind of an awkward moment, right? You have a nickname. Someone's supposed to give you the nickname. You don't give yourself a nickname, but because of Jesus and who he is, his identity, his authority, the fact that he is indeed God. He says, I am the son of man. Going back to Daniel chapter seven, this high and lifted up messianic figure. He says, this is me. I am the son of man. You read through the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself more times as the Son of Man than the Son of God. You hear it in passages, famous passages like uh, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can you see the tension rising here? Have you not read? Have you not read? If you would have understood this, if you would have understood this in the Son of Man, Because of who he is, Jesus, the Messiah, he has the power to denounce hypocritical religion. He has the power to make that judgment. He has the power to evaluate your life. He has the power to evaluate my life. So we take a step and we move from the fields now into the city. I'd like you to look at verse 9. They move into the synagogue. This would be the home turf of the Pharisees. This is probably on a different Sabbath day. 
verse 9. He went on from there, and then he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So, it wasn't an innocent question here, so that they might accuse him. Now, we don't know the exact situation that this man had as, as having this withered hand. It could have been some sort of paralysis, but the Pharisees ask Jesus this very pointed question. They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, within their law, they had made all sorts of different concessions, right? If a person's life was at stake, then you can heal them. If, if someone fell down, they cracked their head open and they're bleeding, well, this could lead to death, and so they can be healed, but if it wasn't life-threatening, someone broke their arm, well, we're going to have to wait on that. We're going to have to wait to, to set the arm because it's the Sabbath. And so they had all of these different concessions that were made. And so they asked him that question, is it okay to heal this man? And he knew their intentions. We're going to catch him. See if he says yes. See if he says yes. And Jesus knew this, and he turns the conversation away from himself back to them. And in so doing, he reveals their hypocrisy. Jesus responds back and he says, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. And he says, Of, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is revealing their intentions. He says, look, even you guys have your own provisions within your own oral tradition, within your own laws. When you see one of your animals in danger, when they're in danger of death, then you've written it into your own laws because it's beneficial to you. You have written into your own law, yeah, it's okay to take care of this animal. And Matthew, using this Jewish logic from lesser to greater, the point is, if, if it's okay to do that for an animal, how much more is it okay to do this for a human being? So is it okay? Of course it's okay. That would be the point of the Sabbath, to do good, to give hope, to show mercy. And because that's true, this is what Jesus says to the man. He says, show me your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how they might destroy him. And what's interesting here is that the healing in this situation, is, it's almost the side story. And what's important that we see here, the observation that we have to make is that it's all about Jesus' authority, it's all about his identity, it's all about who he is, that he has the power, the authority, that he is the son of God, that he is the son of man, that he is Lord over the priests, over David, over the temple, and that all things, including the Sabbath, all go back to him as he is greater than them. And what makes the, the Pharisees so angry is that Jesus says, because I have this authority, because I have the authority to see your heart, because I have the authority to see everything that you've made up here, because I have that, because I can make that judgment, he now comes and he reinterprets all of their additions that they have made to the law. And he exposes them. And because these Pharisees see that 
they're being threatened because uh, they realize that they're losing this power battle because the two things that were at stake here were power and authority. It was much greater than an argument that just had to do with the the Sabbath day. It was over power and authority. And because they sense this, it says for the first time in, in the Gospels that the Pharisees specifically started to plot how they might take Jesus' life. I don't know about you, but whenever I read stories like this in the Gospels, whenever I read about the Pharisees, I always, one of the things that I I believe and one of the things that I think to myself is whenever I read these, I think, man, I am glad that I'm not like the Pharisees. I am so glad that I am not a good religious person. I am so glad that I am not like that at all. Now, the truth is, and I'll give the Pharisees some credit here, I believe that they at least tried. <laughs> they tried to obey. They tried to follow. They tried to develop all, things on, all of these things. Unfortunately, in doing this, they created this law, something that was bloated, something that was so big that they could never obey it, and let alone the people could never obey the law that had been created and all the tradition that had been created around what God had originally intended. And I think where we are at risk and the, the uh, hypocrisy that we can have is that because we don't want to be like that, because we don't want to be these people, I don't want to follow laws, I don't want to follow religion, I want to trust in who God is, I want to believe in the love of God, I believe that I follow God by grace through faith and I believe all of those things to be true. But in doing that, we say things like, you know what I want to do? I just want to follow God out of the, the pureness of my heart each and every day. I just, I just want to follow God. I just want to do this because of what is in my heart. I just want to trust him. And I have to be honest in, in, in saying this. If we say things like this, there would be days whenever I wake up and within my sinful heart, I just don't want that. And I think that there always has to be some level of obedience to God in what he wants for us. And so I believe there's a sense where the the Pharisees really got this right. And I think the hypocrisy that we can demonstrate each and every day is we don't put this into practice. We don't have rules. We don't have disciplines. And in so doing, there is a hypocrisy in us. I believe uh, what Kevin DeYoung said is true. I think this is a great quote. He says, whenever we approach the Christian life, there always needs to be some element of spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. That has to be a part of us. And we have to admit that when there isn't some effort on our part, when we don't give our best effort, and that is by the grace of God under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, there's always hypocrisy in us. Always. I'd like to finish by offering three points of application, two questions, and one statement, okay? The first question is this. Are you willing to admit any level of hypocrisy in your own life? Are you, are you willing to admit that? And we're really good at making rules and making standards and asking people to follow these standards, standards that we could actually never live out ourselves. There's a picture that's going to be on the screen behind me, a picture that I took uh, couple years ago, some rules that were written on uh, front, front uh, doors of a local convenience store, 
And they'd put these rules on, on the front glass doors, and this is a store where kids would come in after school and buy lots of candy and hang out and spend lots of money. I'm sure that's their parents. But here were the rules that they made. The first one is, leave backpacks, purses, bags, binders, and school supplies outside next to the windows. Okay, that makes sense. Don't want anyone stealing anything. That's an all right idea. Number two, don't sit or stand in front of or near the door. Number three, no sitting, leaning against, or touching the 12 packs of soda or the water bottles. Okay, hands off the water bottles. Can't have that. Number four, don't walk around in the aisles if you're not buying anything. Don't even walk in the aisles. Okay, we're serious here. It's a convenience store. Okay? Number five, don't touch things. Ha a, a variety of objects here. Hats, sunglasses, candy, food, etc. that you're not going to buy. Number six, no running, yelling, sitting, fighting, or disrupting other customers. Number seven, if you do not follow the rules, you must leave the store. Okay, at least they said please. That was nice. And then at the end, they said thank you. Notice one of the rules they didn't have on there was don't spend your money in here. Right? We like that. Do, this, do these things, live this way. And I have to ask myself the question, what adult on their best day could actually obey all of these rules, all of these things? So are you willing to admit any level of hypocrisy that you might have? What exists in your life that you are asking of other people that you're not willing to give? In your relationships, we want all sorts of mercy from our spouse, yet we're not willing to give it back. We're not willing to forgive. We demand forgiveness from everyone around us, friends, co-workers, husband, wife, family, yet we will not give that in return. And maybe you're that person that you're, you're the one that's always accusing the church of hypocrisy, how that, this all exists in the church, yet you realize deep down inside of you, that's you. And this is what Jesus was so angry with the Pharisees over. This idea that they had weighed the people down, they had weighed them down tradition after tradition after tradition, law after law after law, yet they couldn't even live that out themselves. And, and they piled it on everyone else. If that's you, I think we all struggle with this at some level. Maybe we need to go back to Matthew 5, we studied several months earlier, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. This is why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you are, uh, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, totally unlike the leaders of the day. So as followers of Jesus Christ, you might write this question down, something that we need to ask ourselves regularly. Is there anything in me or in you that is demanding of others something that I am not willing to do myself. Second question is this. Do you have anyone giving you honest feedback about the hypocrisy that might exist in your own life? What people are speaking truth to you? Here at Sunnybrook, we talk about all sorts of these different areas where we have, areas of ministry, environments that we've created. We talk about life groups. We talk about... Uh, marriage events. We talk about men's encounters, women's encounters, marriage ministry. We talk about student ministry and children's ministry. Are these things created just so that we can keep everyone busy? The answer would be no. But we have put these places, these, these ministry areas in place so that 
we, we have time to ask those hard questions. How are you doing? What people are telling you the truth about your life, whether you're living by grace, through faith, or if you are living a hypocritical lie? This is why we need others. It's why Proverbs 27, 17, familiar passage is iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens another. The whole entire book of Hebrews, one of the main purposes that it was written so that the church, the community that it was written to would be challenged to not give up meeting together. And what we have in community is so special as the church. This is what we have. These are, this is what we have as the church. We get to tell the truth to one another. Who is it that you are living with and doing life with who will be honest with you on whether or not you're living in the truth or you're living a hypocritical lie? And the third application point is simply this. Our hypocrisy will indeed be revealed by God, yet there's a solution for it. And when we talk about this, sometimes we look at hypocrisy and we think, wow, this is something that just came on the scene in the last two or three weeks that the church has been struggling with, right? This is relatively new. But if you go back in history and you see in the history in the church that this has always been an issue. This has always been a problem. As a matter of fact, this is how Jesus is confronting the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. This was the state of the church. And Jesus says, I know your works. I know who you are. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have this reputation of being a, a good church-going family. You have this reputation of being a mature, Christ-following college student. You have this reputation of being this high school student that's pursuing Jesus. You have this reputation of being this great pastor that really cares. Yet you realize what's going on in your heart every day is something different than that. You see, it's in all of us. You, me, it's there. And if that's you, I want you to find hope, though. This is not the end. This is not where the letter stopped as it was written to the church at Sardis. What's the solution? Verse 3. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, remember what you have seen and what you have heard Keep it and repent. Remember. Remember the day that Jesus Christ redeemed your life. Drew Henderson, go back, remember November 1992 when Jesus redeemed your life, what he has done in you. And that was not a one-time event only. That's each and every day. God continues to redeem me. He continues to change me. Redeem, remember the day of your redemption. The second thing would be repent. As you're changed by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit in you, repent, change direction, change your heart, change your mind, begin to pursue and demonstrate what we said earlier, that spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. Remember, repent, trust in what Christ has done. And this is something that the Pharisees never understood. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for who Jesus is. 
not who he was, but who he is and continues to be. Thank you that Jesus, at his core, he is always challenging people. He challenged the Pharisees and revealed their hearts and their minds and their motives and their intent. And I would be a fool to think that he's not doing that with me. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that he can see beyond uh, what we put forth as the truth about ourselves. God, we, we just ask that as you do this in us, as the Spirit reveals the truth about who we are, that we would continue uh, in this gift that we have in the church that we can tell the truth to one another, that we can trust one another, that we can trust the opinions of, and, and insight and the truth about what people tell us who we are. We can trust that because you've given them the Holy Spirit too. And so we thank you for the gift of the church. God, we love you. We thank you for today. In your name, amen.